Welcome to the First Church Orlando podcast. Here you will find recordings of weekly sermons, devotions, interviews, and seminar recordings from the First United Methodist Church of Orlando. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the podcast. Our scripture this morning comes from Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 5. Paul writes, People whose lives are based on selfishness think about selfish things. But people whose lives are based on the Spirit think about things that are related to the Spirit. The attitude that comes from selfishness leads to death, but the attitude that comes from the Spirit leads to life and peace. So the attitude that comes from selfishness is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law because it can't. People who are self-centered aren't able to please God. But you aren't self-centered. Instead, you are in the Spirit if in fact God's Spirit lives in you. If anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Him. If Christ is in you, the Spirit is your life because of God's righteousness, but the body is dead because of sin. If the Spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your human bodies also through His Spirit that lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it isn't an obligation to ourselves to live our lives on the basis of selfishness. This is the word of God for the people of God. Lord, would you now speak to us about this divine mystery of living in our bodies and what our bodies demand and desire and living in the Spirit and living in ways that lead to the abundant life that Jesus promised. Teach us today a bit more about that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in seminary, one of my professors Uh, was a Western North Carolina native who bore a striking resemblance to Andy Griffith, both in his appearance, but also in his manner of of Southern speech. And frequently in his lectures, uh, he would sort of move from the formal lecture into to kind of preaching to us. And he would say, oh, there I go again, slipping from preaching into meddling preaching the meddling. And he would describe preaching as different than meddling. Both happened in a pulpit, he said. Preaching is one of those nice sermons that tells a nice story from the Bible that everyone can more or less feel good about and then leave on time for their Sunday lunch. Meddling also comes in the form of a sermon, but it may feel a little more intrusive. It may feel a little more like uh, you're hitting a little closer to home. It may feel a little more serious, a little more soul-piercing. It may make certain individuals squirm. Preaching is fine. Meddling may be irritating. Preaching is intended to inform. Meddling, as a form of preaching, may feel uncomfortably challenging. Preaching is, you know, for everybody in the room. 
but sometimes certain kinds of preaching makes it feel like the preacher's talking to me, meddling with my issues. Well, you may have figured out by now that as a preacher, I enjoy meddling. You know those moments where I ask that kind of uh, rhetorical question and then leave that lingering, pregnant, uncomfortable pause? I do that on purpose. In fact, as I plan my sermon, sometimes I'll read back through what I've written and think, where are the moments that I can put in those like kind of uncomfortable meddling moments? The problem for me now is that during this season of Lent and these sermons on the seven deadly sins, it feels like my sermons are meddling with me. These sermons, it happens always as I'm preparing sermons, but something about these sermons are making me look in a new, deeper, harder way at the reality of sin in my own life. And my disappointing lack of development in the virtues. When Pastor Emily talked about pride and humility on Ash Wednesday, it forced me to, to confront my lack of humility. When I spoke about greed, I had to take an honest look at my overabundant collection of stuff and even my tendency to be a little stingy with others. Last week when I talked about sloth, I I had to be honest with myself that I'm sometimes spiritually lazy and that I have an underdeveloped, underdeveloped virtue of diligence. Now, if I hadn't admitted all of that to you, it's possible that I could have hidden some of that behind the facade of being a pastor. Maybe you didn't know that those things are a struggle for me, or maybe I'm in denial and you obviously know those things are a struggle. I don't really know. We're not always clear about those things. But today I realized in preparing the sermon, I can't hide this one. Even standing behind this lectern, there's nothing I can do to hide from the reality that I struggle with the sin of gluttony. Even since last June, when the doctors demanded that I start losing weight, and I have, I still have a long way to go. And the issue of gluttony plagues me every day. I've struggled with weight my entire adult life. As a teenager, I was as skinny as any young man you've ever seen. I could eat anything and as much as I wanted any time. Something happened when I went to college. Um, My metabolism changed. I kept eating and I started gaining weight quickly. Then to add to the problem, uh, in college I joined a fraternity. And I was the stereotypical fraternity guy, meaning I consumed a lot of beer, which is highly caloric. By the time I graduated from college, it had become a problem. It had its fingers, its grip on me, and I knew it. My problem with beer is much like my problem with food. I've never drank a beer or eaten a donut or a scoop of ice cream that didn't feel like it deserved to be followed by another. There are people who seem naturally inclined to moderation, and I'm not one of them. I've never been good at that. But when I found this church after college, as I began to wrestle with my call to ministry, and then when I became the youth director, I knew that my drinking was incompatible with who God was calling me to be. And so I had my very last drink in October 
of 1990. I've not had one since and I don't plan to have another. I know that I don't have control over that. But I kept eating. And in fact, my problem is that food became my drug of choice. For all of the reasons I drank beer, now food served that purpose. And the reality is that food is a socially acceptable drug, especially in church. People like when their pastor eats. If you ever go to a covered dish dinner, you may not realize, but every eye is on the pastor to see if the pastor takes a little of what I brought. And sometimes people like to walk you over to the dessert table and say, did you see the pie I made just for you, right? The nice thing about a food addiction is that it never impairs my ability to drive. It never impairs my work performance. And people actually seem to like it sometimes. But eating can be just as addictive as any other kind of addiction. In fact, sugar has the same addictive qualities that alcohol and cocaine have. And sugar isn't li limited to just the refined sugar that we eat. It includes all the simple carbs that turn to sugar in our system. Um, and and uh, corn syrup, which is now in everything. Today we're talking about gluttony. Gluttony is defined by Rebecca DeYoung as primarily not much, not about how much we're eating, but about how much we the but how much pleasure we take in eating and why gluttons use food as a drug as a means of giving ourselves a needed pleasure fix rather than simply and genuinely enjoying it so overconsumption eating too much is is certainly part of gluttony that's kind of the image the person just keeps eating and eating but gluttony really is driven by a compulsive craving for pleasure and oftentimes a pleasure to overcome pain. I mean, it's a holiday. Why not indulge, right? Or you just got a promotion at work. Why not go out for a nice expensive dinner? Or it's your birthday. You deserve to cheat a little. Or it's a party. You can diet tomorrow. Or I had a bad day at the office. I need to stop for some comfort food on the way home. Or I've been feeling bad lately. Maybe a little therapy with Ben and Jerry would help, right? Frederick Beekner writes, A glutton is one who raids the icebox refrigerator for a cure for spiritual malnutrition. Gluttony is a spiritual issue. It's not just a weight problem. The problem is that we have to eat, right? Even gluttons still have to eat. We need food for fuel, right? Our bodies depend on it. We need a certain amount of calories every day. They say that women need about 2,000 calories a day. Men need about 2,500 calories a day. We need protein. We need calcium. We need vitamins and minerals. We need sugars and carbs. We need fiber. We need it so that we can grow, so that our bones can be strong, so that we have healthy muscular development. We need it for energy. We need it for uh, building up our immune systems. We need it to recover when we, you know, use our bodies in some ways. We need food. All of us need food. And take it even a step further. I think God made us to enjoy food. Did you know in your mouth you have on, we have on average 10,000 taste buds? That's what makes us enjoy all the different flavors. But even before we take the first bite, we already enjoy food by the way it looks. Ever notice how many pictures people put on Instagram of what they ate? 
right? There's something to that. Or you smell it cooking and you start to salivate because it's already happening. I think God made that. Or we know the feeling of, of, of a full belly or warm food on a cold day. It just feels good. We call certain foods comfort foods, and they in reality are. Certain foods like pasta and pizza, you know, those heavy starchy foods, actually release a hormone called serotonin, which comforts us. And they actually battle the negative effect of cortisol, which is a stress hormone released when we're under stress. So in many ways, food does comfort us. It feels good. Even the Bible makes this a little bit complicated because the Bible talks about both fasting and feasting. There are certain seasons where we intentionally, spiritually go without. Remember when Jesus was kind of criticized, why don't you fast like the Pharisees? But the Bible also talks about feasting. Seasons when we talk about, we enjoy, we celebrate God's abundance. All of this just gets complicated. We celebrate with food. How many meetings happen over food? How many first dates happen over food? How many times do we get together just to know each other a little better over food? We care for people with food. Methodists in particular are known for our casserole dishes. But let me tell you, you can put delicious things in casseroles, but I have not eaten many healthy things that come out of casserole dishes. It's just the reality of it. How many cultural experiences are based around food? Rich food, feasting food. So gluttony goes long, way beyond our need for nourishment. It goes way beyond the occasional celebration, which is absolutely fine. It's when we use food or we abuse food in harmful ways. I said earlier that the average woman needs about 2,000 calories. The average man needs about 2,500 calories. The average American eats somewhere between 2,500 and 3,600 calories a day, about 1,000 more than we actually need. About 40% of Americans are morbidly obese. We all know the medical risk around weight and overeating, diabetes, heart disease, cancers, joint pain, digestive issues, and overall diminished quality of life. In fact, during COVID, one of the high risk factors for COVID was obesity. This year, Americans will spend $70 billion collectively on diets. And yet with this, ironically, at the same time, anorexia and bulimia are on the rise. We hear all the time about complicated understanding of body image in our, in our culture. Where is the line? How do we eat the healthy, normal way and not slip in to gluttony? Paul talks a bit about this in the passage that I just read for us. Um, he, he begins to explain that sometimes we eat out of a sense of obligation. You see, gluttony is more than just eating too much. It's developing an obsession with the pleasure of eating. It's repeatedly trying to find in food comfort. Finding the solution to my internal pain through a box of donuts or a bottle or another bag of chips. It's treating food or drink as though it is divine, as though it's a God. So in this passage that I just read, Paul is describing this tension between the desires of our flesh and more godly spirit-driven desires. Desires that are driven by our hungers, our passions, our lusts versus 
the natural hungers that God gives us that are meant to be for our good. Paul goes into Stephen saying that, that sometimes our fleshy desires are self-centered, self-focused, and isn't gluttony essentially that, about the pleasure that I want in this moment. Whereas, Paul says, in Christ we have died to the flesh, and we are alive in Christ. We live by the Spirit. Now, let me be really clear about this. In Christ, we certainly are allowed to enjoy food. In Christ, we're allowed to certainly enjoy eating. The issue is when we feel obligated. That's the key word. When we feel obligated to act on our hungers, thirsts, and desires. He says in verse 12, So then, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation but it isn't an obligation to ourselves to live our lives on the basis of selfishness. Right. Hear the word twice. Two different obligations. One that we are not obligated to and one that we are. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever experienced a craving, a hunger, a thirst, a desire that is so powerful you didn't feel like you were strong enough to resist it? Like you didn't really have a choice. I mean, what could I do? I'm only human. You ever felt that before? Some examples might be, I was so hungry, I just couldn't stop myself. They offered me seconds. It would have been rude to refuse. Oh, it's been a hard day. I need a drink. I know I'm not supposed to eat like that, but oh, it just looks so good. The doctor told me I have to change my diet, but how can I ever give up? fill in the blank. It was a buffet. I had to get my money's worth. <laughs> my mother taught me to always clean my plate. They say never go shopping when you're hungry. Well, right? How many of those impulsive decisions, those compulsive actions happen because we feel powerless. We feel obligated to, to answer the body's desire, right? Paul says, no, nope, that's not right. You do have an obligation, but your obligation isn't to your bodily desires. Your obligation is to honor Christ. Your obligation is to honor the work of the Spirit within you. Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Don't you know that you have the Holy Spirit from God and you don't belong to yourselves? You have been bought and paid for, so honor God with your body. Paul's talking there about sex, but I think he could equally be talking about food. How do we honor God with our bodies and all the ways that we use our bodies? The problem, I think, with gluttony is much like the problem with other vices. The vices don't begin as vices. All of the vices, in one way or another, begin with the gift of God that we've twisted into something else, right? Think about some of the ones we've talked about so far. Is there anything wrong with having material possessions? Of course not. We need them, right? But when we have too many, it becomes greed. Is there anything wrong with resting? Of course not. God tells us to Sabbath. But then we turn into slothfulness when we just become lazy in our restfulness. There's nothing wrong with sex, unless we use it out of the context that God intended. It's a gift. We'll talk about that in coming weeks. Likewise, food is a gift. 
All of these are examples of gifts of God intended to bless us that become misused, used for the wrong purpose. We always hear money is not the root of evil. Love of money, right, is the root of evil. It's, it's misusing the things that God has given us. Robin Conendek de Young writes, gluttony, like all the vices, begins with something created good, but sin creeps in and corrupts. One of my very favorite books is uh, Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you've read it or not. Uh, I recommend it highly. Screwtape Letters is a fictional correspondence between a senior demon named Screwtape and a junior demon named Wormwood. And Wormwood has been assigned this young Christian who's new to the faith. uh, And his job is to kind of undermine his growing faith. And so Screwtape uh, is, is coaching him on how to do it. And at one point in the letter, Screwtape says, kind of angrily, God is a hedonist at heart. You know, hedonist, that means somebody who loves pleasure. God is a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade. God has filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. Everything has to be twisted for it to have any use to us. That's the demon talking. Everything has to be twisted for it to have any use to us. We fight under cruel disadvantages, he says. So here's the question. How do we battle this tendency to turn good things into something twisted and sinful. If God gives us the sleep and washing and eating and drinking, etc., as good gifts, what do we do to avoid letting those things become twisted into something else? Well, this, the traditional biblical word to church word is temperance. It's not a word you hear a lot in our culture. Our culture tells us more is better. But biblically, the word is temperance. Temperance is more or less the same as moderation. It's having a clear-headed understanding of how we balance our hungers, our desires, our passions with what's good for us, with what God intends to be best for us. It's about having a healthy perspective on everything. It's, It's knowing where the line is between when something's a blessing and when it's become an idol. It's wisdom to know how to have healthy boundaries, when to know when enough is enough. It's knowing that enjoyment and pleasure is a good thing within limits, that it's okay to indulge sometimes, not all the time. And by the way, temperance is a value that probably is good in every part of our lives because in every part of our lives, we have a tendency toward excess. St. Augustine once said, virtuous people avail themselves of all the things of this life with the moderation of a user, not the attachment of a lover. Another author on the virtues, John Garvey, says, it is good to enjoy the pleasures of creation. God made us with that in mind, but pleasures can easily become idols. Setting other pleasures at the margins helps us to pursue the pleasure we ought to seek most, closeness to God. 
Setting other pleasures at the margins helps us to pursue the pleasure we ought to seek most, closeness to God. Temperance keeps that goal in sight and our love of pleasure in check. So each week, we say this every week, each week during this series, we're talking about a vice today. The vice is gluttony. We're talking about the corresponding virtue, which needs to be developed in us. This week, it's temperance. And we're adding a third thing, the vow, because oftentimes the sin part comes pretty easily. The virtue takes a little bit of work, and sometimes we can't wait for the virtue to start before we start working on it. We have to work our way into virtue sometimes. You know, fake it till you make it, right? So each week we've been recommending a vow to go along with developing the virtue. We're trying to keep them simple, something everybody can do. So this week the vow is the very traditional Lent practice of giving something up. It's very common throughout the history of Lent to give up something during Lent that is like food. So it's giving up fats or sugars or alcohol or meat or whatever it might be. Kelly and I gave up meat for Lent in 1992 and we've been vegetarians ever since. You don't have to do that. You don't have to give it up forever. But maybe this, for the remainder of Lent, it's not even a full 40 days, a good way to to work on temperance is just to give up something. Maybe it's your morning stop at Starbucks. I know you still need caffeine, but you don't necessarily need a $10 latte, right? Or maybe it's giving up desserts, or maybe it's giving up potato chips, or maybe it's giving up the afternoon snack, whatever it is. The idea being that just for a point of time, it, it gives us a chance to say, do I really need it? What's, what's motivating this desire? What's motivating this compulsion? Do I really need it? And am I using this to comfort something that I could in this moment ask God to comfort instead? What what could you give up just for a couple more weeks? We're, We're not far from Easter. What could you give up for just these few weeks to help you become a more temperate person, grow in that virtue? Give it some thought. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this isn't a fun topic. And it's not easy, Lord, for some of us. Um, But Lord, none of these vices are easy and none of these virtues are easy to develop. We need your help. We need the empowering of the Spirit. Lord, we pray that with your help, that the way we do all things with our bodies would honor you. So give us fresh perspective. Give us your aid. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and that you will listen again in the future. If you enjoyed today's message, we hope you'll subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and share it with others on social media. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If this podcast is a valuable resource to you, we invite you to give to this ministry by making a financial contribution at firstchurchorlando.org forward slash give. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.